Religious literacy is the knowledge of and ability to understand and talk about a given religion, including one's own. It doesn't necessarily mean you need to agree with or take inspiration from a particular faith, but it does mean that you can accurately talk about its philosophical and metaphysical beliefs, its major practices and holidays, and its contemporary role in society. In any pluralistic society, one that espouses respect for all religious paths, religious literacy takes on more than theoretical importance. It directly informs how we view our neighbors and our fellow citizens, how well we understand one another and what informs our lives. In the West, when it comes to Hinduism, religious literacy is pretty low. Hindu teachings and traditions continue to be widely misunderstood because of inaccurate or stereotyped, caricatured, cast cows and karma portrayals. Correcting that is one of the main goals of this podcast, and part of that is correcting some of the sometimes egregious misconceptions that float around in the public mind about Hindus and Hinduism, which is what this episode is all about, with more than a bit of nod to how the media and academia perpetuate these errors in understanding and interpretation. I'm Matt McDermott, and this is All About Hinduism, Episode 11, The Big Popular Misconceptions and Misrepresentations Episode. One of the biggest issues over the past two decades, as the Hindu population has grown in the West, and the benefits of Hindu practices such as yoga and Ayurveda have been wholeheartedly embraced by non-Hindus and non-Indians, is a basic failure to actually call Hindu practice Hindu even when other religions get specifically and accurately named. Here are some examples of how one publication has historically gone out of its way to not write the word Hindu in connection with yoga. Any emphasis in these phrases is mine to call out the error. Quote, there are examples of this in all devotional traditions, mystical Christianity, Judaism, and Sufism, and especially in the Bhakti tradition of India. End quote. Another, many people name ahimsa, the yogic precept of non-harming as an influence on their dietary choice. Contemporary yogic and Buddhist teachers offer a quiverful of strategies for interrupting the tendency to identify with thoughts and emotions. End quote. The popularity of yoga in the West has skyrocketed in the past two decades, today forming a multi-billion dollar industry with more than 35 million participants in the United States alone. But as yoga has become mainstream in American culture, all too often, its Hindu roots have been ignored or delinked. From magazines dedicated to yoga to articles on yoga in mainstream media, avoiding or eliminating the term Hindu, even when referring to definitively Hindu beliefs, practices, and scripture, is common practice. Replacing Hindu or Hinduism are terms such as Eastern, Ancient Indian, Indic, Yogic, or Vedic. We went over some of these in episode two, so go back and listen to that for more information. But while none of these terms is exactly incorrect, articles in these same media outlets frequently refer to or attribute directly other beliefs, practices, and sacred texts to the appropriate major world religion, including Buddhism, Christianity, and Judaism. For example, a specific style of meditation may be referred to as Buddhist, but decidedly Hindu scripture, such as the Upanishads or the Bhagavad Gita, or Hindu practices such as Bhakti, the path of loving devotion to God, and kirtan, singing of devotional poems, are not attributed to Hinduism. Yoga, as well as other Hindu spiritual practices, 
that benefit people of all backgrounds should be attributed as Hindu in the interests of accuracy, dispelling stereotypes, and improving religious literacy. Back in episode 5, we talked about how many Hindus are vegetarian, and how though a higher percentage of Hindus are vegetarian compared to other communities, the majority of Hindus do eat meat, at least occasionally. Nevertheless, one part of that misperception is a peculiar tendency to fixate on concerns about diet as something quintessentially Hindu, ignoring the fact that many communities and social groups in the world also have specific dietary tendencies and guidelines. Back in 2015, the New York Times published this passage. Gandhi famously denied himself food, and by starving himself to protest British rule, he ultimately made India stronger. But India's leaders today are using food as a weapon, and they are sacrificing not themselves, but others. Their decisions threaten to make India's children, already among the most undernourished in the world, weaker still. In India, you are what you eat, and devotion to strict vegetarianism is a trait common to many upper-caste Hindus. Some wield their diet like a badge of their status. Others demand that people around them, like children and household staff, eat as they do to maintain the purity of their kitchens. They will not visit restaurants that also serve non-vegetarian food for fear of being polluted. End quote. In this article, the author discussed a number of hot-button dietary and animal welfare issues in India, proposed bans on beef, initiated by both Jains and Hindus, it should be said, and concerns over serving eggs in school. Remember, as we learned in a previous episode, to Indian vegetarians, regardless of religion, eggs are not usually considered vegetarian, as they are for most Western vegetarians. Though the author raises important points about malnutrition and freely making dietary choices, as well as the merits of outright bans on certain foods. She mischaracterizes the desires of strict vegetarians as something unique to India and unique to Hindus, as well as something uniquely associated with caste. In fact, the distribution of vegetarians in India cannot strictly be discussed in terms of caste. Regional, generational aspects at least play as much of a factor in determining whether any individual Hindu is vegetarian as does their community and concerns about animal welfare, environmental considerations, and personal health. Also, wearing one's, quote, diet like a badge of status is not exclusive to Hindu vegetarians. Non-vegetarians can often be observed boasting about not being able to, quote, live without a good steak, or fitness experts swearing by a particular diet like low-carb, high-fat, high-protein, or raw food, or what have you. The same can be said about parents giving their children the same food that they eat. Parents everywhere, regardless of religion, naturally place their own dietary preferences on their own children, usually without comment. As for strict vegetarian Hindus refusing to eat in restaurants that also serve non-vegetarian food, similar self-imposed restrictions can be found amongst adherents of other faiths. Muslims and Jews who only eat at halal or kosher restaurants, or even strict vegetarians or vegans, regardless of their faith tradition. Healthy debate about the merits of forcing dietary choices on different communities or on the wisdom of banning certain foods is one thing. But portraying this debate as something unique to Hindu society and caste is lazy journalism, as well as ignorant of the growing vegetarian and vegan movement around the globe. Finally, if one looks to other societies or subsections of societies, non-vegetarian dietary choices and traditions are just as hotly debated and loaded with emotion. 
Every culture and every religious tradition engages in this sort of discussion in one form or another. That said, the concern about forcing dietary choices on others is a decent one to discuss. However, singling out India and singling out Hindus for scrutiny because of dietary choices is unfair. This next one is from The Economist in an article titled Kashmir's Future, Fleeting Chance. It's from 2011, but this sort of writing continues to this day. Here's a selection that managed to weave together exoticism with misplaced sexualization in one single line. These are unexpectedly happy days in conflict-torn Kashmir. Tourists flock from India's sweaty plains to gasp the mountain air. Srinagar's hotels, houseboats, and cafes are crammed. Jet skis roar over the once tranquil Dal Lake. Hordes of Hindu pilgrims trek unmolested to a sacred penis-shaped lump of ice at Amarnath, a cave temple. The naturally formed Amarnath Shivalingam is a sacred shrine for millions upon millions of Hindus around the globe. We haven't gone into specific deities within Hinduism yet in this series. In organizing it, I thought better to lead with the big philosophical concepts first. Too often, in my experience, non-Hindus get caught up in the details of deities and rituals and the more publicly showy aspects of Hinduism, sometimes getting confused by them. Though when you have a grounding in the philosophy underlying those things, it all makes much more intuitive sense. With that short preface done, Know that Lord Shiva is, depending on which strand of Hinduism you follow, either the transformative and sometimes destructive power of the universe, the other parts being creation and preservation, or all three of those fundamental aspects of the universe combined into one being. The lingam is a symbol of this aspect of the universe, a vertical, rounded column, sometimes decorated with faces or other carvings, other times plain and other times recognizes natural features in the landscape made of ice or stone. It represents the infant in nature of the divine. It represents, as yet, undifferentiated divinity. It is the simplest and most ancient symbol of Lord Shiva, and is said to represent God beyond all forms and qualities. According to Hindu sages, the lingam is a visible symbol of the ultimate reality, which is present in all objects of creation. It is believed by many that at the end of the various aspects of creation, all of the different aspects of the divine find a resting place in the lingam. Now, sometimes the lingam is also seen as a penis, representing masculine creative energy contrasted and balanced with the yoni, a womb, representing feminine creative energy. All of those interpretations are true. But what is decidedly not true is that when Hindus see a lingam made of stone or ice or anything else, and use this object as a focus for devotional practices and worship, they are most definitely not worshipping a literal penis. It's just not what's going on. The reporter's description of the naturally forming ice stalagmite as a, quote, penis-shaped lump of ice is sensationalist and disrespectful. It's also obscenely ignorant. Misconceptions about how Hindus worship take on less sensational forms as well. One of these perennial misconceptions is the place cows hold in the Hindu mind. Here's a description from the Associated Press. Quote, Some trace cow worship back to Lord Krishna, who is said to have first appeared as a cowherd and protector of cattle. Several other gods also lived for time 
as cows, and the animals remain a powerful symbol of the religion, end quote. The fact is, although Hindus respect the cow and sometimes do do puja or rituals honoring cows, the cow is not seen as a deity. Hindus consider all living things to be sacred, an attitude reflected in reverence for the cow. Representative of the high-placed cows and cattle had more broadly in ancient Hindu and Indian society, there's a bovine goddess, Kamadenu, described in various Hindu sacred texts as a representation of the mother of all cows. In Hinduism, the cow is seen as a generous, ever-giving source, which takes nothing but that which is necessary for its own sustenance. Hindus are enjoined to treat the cow with the same respect accorded to the mother, as the cow is a virtual sustainer of life, providing milk and a means of plowing the earth to grow crops. The cow receives such status as a result of the historical need of early agrarian Hindu civilization. A classic passage from the Rig Veda reads, The cows have come and brought us good fortune. In our stalls, contented may they stay. May they bring forth calves for us, many-colored, giving milk for Indra each day. You make, O cows, the thin man sleek. To the unlovely you bring beauty. Rejoice our homestead with pleasant lowing. In our assemblies, we laud your vigor. The cow thus represents Hindu values of selfless service, strength, dignity, and ahimsa. Because of this, though not all Hindus are vegetarian, those that do eat meat usually abstain from eating beef. It's worth noting that in contemporary society, despite continued reverence for cows, practically speaking, cows are not always treated as well in India as Hindu teachings would like them to be. As is the case with any religion or philosophical system, gaps between philosophy and practice exist. Continuing on with misconceptions about Hindu worship, we come to the use of the word idol. Here's a typical passage. I won't cite this one because this sort of thing gets written all the time. Quote, A Hindu temple houses idols of gods and goddesses, which are typically carved in stone or marble from India. Now, the correct term in Sanskrit for the object representing a Hindu deity is murti, which is used as a visual tool for contemplating the nature of the god. In English, the closest word would be embodiment. Deity also works, but because that word also can refer to the concept of divinity more broadly, embodiment or image is what I prefer. In fact, there's no Sanskrit word exactly equivalent to the English word idol, as that word is usually used as a false god or graven image in an Abrahamic context. To most readers raised in a Christian, Jewish, or Muslim society, the word idol has a decidedly pejorative sense to it. Hindus, rather than worshipping Amurti as a literal god, use these divine images as focal points designed to be aids in prayer and meditation. Hindus not consider God to be limited to the Murti, rather as a sacred symbol that offers a medium for worship. Indeed, Hindus perceive the divine as being infinite and with the ability to be worshipped in infinite ways. Amurti is just one of these. One final misconception touching on Hindu society as much as Hindu beliefs, is that Hinduism treats women particularly badly. I have a number of examples of this misconception. Let's start with the Daily Beast. Quote, There's a total and complete disrespect for women in Indian religious scriptures. The Mahabharata, Book 13, Section 40, states, 
There's no creature more sinful than woman. She is poison. She is a snake. Other texts say that women are living lies. End quote. It is true that one may find passages in Hindu texts that portray women negatively, just as in the scripture of every other religious tradition. However, insinuating that the denigration of women is a focus of Hindu teachings and that select passages are part of the tradition's key teachings is an egregious misrepresentation when one considers the central, deeper message of Hindu thought. That all of existence is divine, regardless of its outer characteristics. It also ignores entirely the reality that Hindu women are respected as pillars of religious life, as well as the fact that Hinduism has always had a profound tradition of worshipping the divine in feminine form, and today is the single example among the world's largest traditions where the divine feminine is revered. That there has been and remains a disconnect between teachings of equality and respect for women and goddess worship, and examples of patriarchal treatment of women in Hindu society, is indeed unfortunate. However, to claim the norms of Hindu society are any more patriarchal or oppressive in its treatment of women as a whole than those of any other culture in comparable historical time periods or today simply isn't true. Here's a passage from the Washington Post discussing the cultural practice of dowry. Quote, Pooja's case was the latest in a series of well-publicized incidents in which brides have balked at dowry demands, suggesting that some young women are losing patience with the age-old Hindu tradition. End quote. Dowry is the practice of payment to the bridegroom's family by the bride's family, along with the giving away of the bride during the marriage ceremony. The practice originated as a means of helping with marriage expenses and became a form of insurance against mistreatment by a bride's in-laws. Dowry was outlawed in 1961, but remains a social ill that is practiced across several religious traditions throughout South Asia. Here's the Wall Street Journal discussing another historic social ill from India, leaving out context. Quote, There's a complex history of fire and women in India. In Hindu mythology, the goddess Sati set herself alight in a family dispute centering on preserving her husband's honor. That story is tied to a centuries-old historical practice, also known as Sati, in which widows would immolate themselves or be forcefully immolated on their husband's funeral pyres. End quote. Sati, sometimes spelled Sati with a U-S-U-T-T-E-E in historical documents, was an uncommon practice in the Indian subcontinent dating back to ancient India. The practice, which had no basis in the Vedas or Upanishads, was voluntary self-immolation by widows, primarily among aristocracy, who wished to follow their dead husbands instead of remarrying or remaining a widow. The historical record shows it being practiced by Hindus and later by Sikhs as well. There's also evidence that it was practiced by people living on the Central Asian steppe in Southeastern Europe, in Tonga, Fiji, Indonesia, and elsewhere. Throughout human history and cultures on every continent, it's possible to find examples of family members or retainers and slaves of aristocracy or warriors being ritually killed as part of funerary rites. By contemporary concepts of human rights, such practices are categorically abhorrent. But by historical norms, the practice of sati is clearly not unique. Sati was outlawed in British India in 1861 and in Nepal in 1920. Further laws criminalizing the practice were passed in India in 1988, 
following a single highly publicized incident the previous year. From Indian independence in 1947 to that point, there were some 30 cases of sati in the entire nation, in a nation of hundreds of millions of people. In the past three decades, while occasional incidents of sati or attempted sati have occurred, the total number can be counted on one's fingers. And this, again, in a nation of more than one billion people. Such incidents are unquestionably horrendous, but to present them as something condoned by contemporary Hindu society or occurring with any significant frequency at all is entirely erroneous. But yet, it gets printed. This episode is based in large part off a printed guide for journalists on basic errors in reporting on Hinduism. If you'd like to take a look at that, please visit the HAF website at hinduamerican.org and navigate to the resources section. All About Hinduism's academic advisor is Dr. Shreen Bala. Suhak Shuklo reviews each episode, making all sorts of helpful notes and suggestions. Shah Mallard is the show's associate producer. Before you go, do us a favor. Leave a nice five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to this on. Please also subscribe or follow us so you can get all the new episodes the moment they're released. And finally, you can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at hinduamerican.org slash donate.